Hello and welcome everybody to a new episode of Africa's a Country Talk. I'm William Shorkey, streaming from Johannesburg, South Africa, and I'm joined as always by my co-presenter, Sean Jacobs, who's in Brooklyn, New York. What you're watching is AIAC Talk, which is Africa's a Country's weekly talk and interview show, which broadcasts every single Tuesday at 5 p.m. if you're in Dakar, 6 p.m. if you're in Johannesburg, and 12 p.m. if you are in America. Our show is produced as always. Wait, wait, if you're in New York, if you're in New York, they have different you know, times. I, I, I think it's fair to generalize America as payback for, you know, the treatment we're always dealt in this part of the world. So I'm, I'm going to paint it all with one brush and say, America, there's only one time zone. Um, and it's 12 p.m. if you're in America. And our show is produced as always by Antonin Engel, who's in Cape Town. South Africa, and you're watching episode 37. On that decolonial time note, um, <laughs> today it has been 40 years since Bob Marley, the legendary musician um, and Rastafarian, passed away. He died on May 11, 1981. He was only 36 years old when he passed away. In today's show, we will unpack the life and the afterlife of Bob Marley, and shortly we'll be joined by Matthew J. Smith, and Erin McLeod to help us do so. Matthew is a professor of history and director of the Center for the Study of the Legacies of British Slave Ownership at the University College London. Previously, he was professor of history and head of history and archaeology at the University of West Indies um, at Mona. Um, and Erin, uh, uh, sorry, Matthew is also the co-editor of the New Jamaica Reader, which we'll ask him about later uh, with Diana Payton. Um, that book is forthcoming from Duke University Press. Um, and then our second guest is Erin McLeod. As I said, Erin teaches on identity, culture, class, race, and, and geography, and is the author of a book about Rastafari who returned to Africa. That book is called Visions of Zion, Ethiopians, and Rastafari in the Search for the Promised Land, which was published by NYU Press um, in 2014. And a reminder, as always, if you missed our show last week, we very provocatively asked if Africans still need Karl Marx, since it was on the eve of Marx's birthday. And for that episode, we were joined by returning guest Annie Olaloko-Teriba, as well as Zayad El-Nabolsi, to debate and discuss the questions that always come up whenever people talk about Karl Marx. You know, we asked, was he Eurocentric? Is he still relevant? And so on and so forth. And as much as the episode was does Africa still need Marx? You should check it out to find out why it might be the other way around. So clips from that episode are available on our YouTube channel, but as usual, check out the whole thing on our Patreon, as well as all the episodes from our archive. So remember to hit the like button. As you can hear, we have to do the, we do the spiel of like an NPR show with all the whole like, tonight. Uh, <laughs> remember to hit the like button below. Um, it's on the screen right now, and subscribe on our YouTube, as well as follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Um, and please subscribe to our Patreon, where you can help fund Africa as a country in general. Now, let's get to today's program. We, we're just going to jump straight into it, because we think it's a, it's Bob Marley is a rich subject, and we thought we'll just get straight into it. So we're going to bring on Matthew and Aaron, who are our guests. 
Um, and just to remind for those of you, um, I, I read the bios at the beginning, but I'm just going to say some of it again. Uh, Matthew is a professor of history and director of the Center uh, for the Study of the Legacies of British Slave Ownership at the University College London. He's also the author of two books, which we did not mention actually at the, at the, at the top of the show, uh, Red, Black, Red and Black in Haiti, Radicalism, Conflict and Political Change, 1934 to 1947, which was published by the University of North Carolina Press in uh, 2009. And he's also in another book, Liberty, Fraternity, Exile, Haiti and Jamaica After Emancipation, also published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2014. And his current research, which I think is very much uh, uh, makes sense for today's program, includes a social history of Jamaican popular music since the 1950s. And then Aaron uh, writes and teaches on identity, culture, class, race, and geography, and is the author of a, of a book about Rastafari, who returned to, to Africa, specifically Ethiopia, uh, visions of Zion, Ethiopians, and Rastafari in the search for the promised land, um, NYU Press 2014. Both Matthew and Aaron have contributed to Africa as a country. Just go to the website, you can read their archives. They've done so a number of times. And in fact, Matthew wrote a post today on the 40th anniversary of Bob Marley's death, which you, if, you, if you're going to read anything, and I've said this on Twitter already, if you could read anything on Bob Marley today, you should read this article. It's titled, uh, Father on from Zion. Um, and it's on the website. I think we're going to put the, the image on the, on the screen in a minute. But before we want to start the show today, I think what we'll do is um, we're doing the show of course, on a, on a day when there's so much happening um, in Israel and Palestine today with the, with the violence by the Israeli state um, happening today in, in, um, in Jerusalem. And one of the things that's been interesting that people have noticed about Omalis Rasta uh, and Rastafari makes a lot of references to Zion. So there's a way in which Israel plays some kind of role uh, in the imagination um, of, of, of Rastafari. Um, and we know that there, there is a, it's very hard, right, to ignore what's happening, um, what's going on in Israel and Palestine, and to think of the contradiction between modern Zionism as a supremacist ideology um, and Zionism it's understood by Rastafari, like by, by Bob Marley and others. Um, we wanted to ask you just at the opening, what do you make of all of this? And even of some of, some of the other contradictions, which, for example, Bob Marley's son, Ziggy, um, he's a supporter of modern Israel. Julian Mali has gone and performed there. And I was checking today, at some point, I think, even Damien Mali was scheduled to perform in Israel, although I know that BDS tried to dissuade him from it. I don't know if he went in the end. But in any case, with that long intro, this I suppose there's two questions here. One is this contradiction uh, or, or this complication, right? Um, Rastas and Zion and modern Israel. And then just specifically, I'm just curious what Bob Mali uh, made of Israel and if you want the Palestinian um, struggle. Either of you could go. That, or, well, perhaps Erin should start first, because I know this is... <laughs> um, I mean, I, I think that in terms of... I mean, when you think, when you think about Rastafari and you think about Zionism, I mean, Rastafari is a movement where Zionism is important and Zion being, being Ethiopia. And one of the 
I guess, sort of problematics of Rastafari is that repatriation is seen by many Rastafari. And I should underline that uh, any statement about Rastafari should not be seen as a monolithic statement about the movement because of the way in which the movement functions. But uh, the concept that Africa, that repatriation is a, month, is a must and that, that Africa and specifically Ethiopia is Zion has of course led people to move from various places around the world, Jamaica being one of them, to Ethiopia and specifically Shashamani, where I did most of my research um, for my PhD book. And one of the interesting things is that the, the, the process of uh, repatriation, uh, it, for Bob Marley specifically, I mean, if we think about the fact that Bob Marley released um, Exodus in 1977, and with so much um, the title song and the album in general sort of speaking to this idea of repatriation. And then in 1978, he actually visited Shashamani. And he was, according to Horace Campbell, a little bit disappointed. And Horace Campbell is a uh, Rastafari scholar and sociologist. And the reaction to to Shashamani and to the small community that was living there at really the height of the Derg regime. Um, Haile Selassie's regime fell in 1974 and uh, there were issues in Ethiopia, if anyone knows any Ethiopian history at that time. And so he, at that point, it was kind of seen as being a bit of a moment of reflection for Bob Marley and this sense, according to Campbell and others, that uh, the Marley moved from repatriation to a focus on liberation or a focus on something that wasn't so much directly about a movement of people to a different space, a movement to Zion. I mean, you could from that sort of draw an understanding that, that Marley um, questioned perhaps the the reality that the Rastafari were in fact settlers within Ethiopia. And if we think of what's happening in Ethiopia right now, I mean, I'm not going to suggest that Bob Marley had an understanding of a Romo nationalism or anything like that. But at the same time, there was an element of understanding that there was an issue in terms of settling on someone's land. And so if you wanted to think about the potential of, of Marley's music and, and Marley's perspective on Zion and, and, and Zionism, there was definitely some thinking about the issues inherent in movement from one space to another versus a liberatory, whether it's a psychological, mental or emotional practice that one could experience. Yeah, um, I'll just add to that briefly, and, and I just want to say thanks for having having us here. It's, it's a pleasure to be with everybody, and I know there, there are people tuned in all over the world, so we're very grateful for your company. Um, when we think about it, to add to what Erin said, it's not just a question of moving to Zion, which of course is central to the Rastafari worldview and goal, but it's also moving away from Babylon. So there's a kind of yin-yang kind of relationship there. And Babylon is the sort of negative 
it's a, it's a collection of all the negative forces in the world that come out of uh, histories of imperialism, colonialism, slavery, racism, and so on. And so the, the creation of a image of uh, Zion, of a better land, of a place beyond the, the sorts of confines and oppressiveness of Babylon um, is, is really important when we sort of conceptualize how Bob Marley positioned uh, his sort of idea of Zion and his idea of liberation, to use uh, Aaron's word, which is, which is quite true. I mean, that sort of, that's a sort of impulse that runs through a lot of his music, actually, from very early on, this sense of freedom. And, and it's really a kind of redefinition of freedom that we start to pick up in his canon um, throughout the 70s. Uh, but I think that a fundamental part of it is uh, uh, a sense that the world in which he is sort of speaking from is an oppressive state. And, and for him, and one of the things that's very interesting when you, when you listen to Bob Marley's music and his lyrics, there is a sort of idea that Africa needed to be embraced and reclaimed and, uh, and, and, re sort of imagined and, and peopled indeed, as Erin mentioned, by people in the diaspora need to go back to Africa. That was very, very fundamental. And he believed Rastafari was an important vehicle for keeping that message of going back to Africa, not just physically, which is important, but this, this sort of embrace mentally of Africa as a very positive space uh, for the world. And that, that is extremely clear when you get to 1979 and the survival album, which he records after his trip to Ethiopia, in which he's very much um, focused on a sense of African liberation, but it's a liberation in, that, that is guided by not only people on the continent of Africa, but Africans abroad coming back home and being part of this, 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 uh, this, this big movement. Matthew, you just said that the world he was speaking from was an oppressive state. So to now talk more specifically about Mali, what was that world? And how did that world come to shape him when he began making music? Um, the, the world, it, specifically when we think about him, immediately we think about Jamaica. And you think about the, the, the circumstances he was living in in Jamaica in the period of his youth from the 60s into the 70s. One of the things though that we must always factor in when we consider Bob Marley is that Bob Marley had a very, um, he, he, he was very peripatetic very early on. He traveled, he, he was, you know, even before this, the, the whalers signed with Chris Blackwell back in 1972, Bob Marley had lived temporarily in the United States, in Delaware, he had, he had been there um, on two separate occasions, one longer than the other. Uh, he had been to Sweden with Johnny Nash. He had been to London uh, several times. Um, even when he was in Sweden, he did a few tours around, um, moving around, not performing, but moving around parts of Europe. Uh, you know, it's a very important idea when we think about the Caribbean experiences, the way in which migration shapes a lot of people and what they expo they're exposed to. One of his biggest heroes, of course, is Marcus Garvey. He had a strong affinity to Marcus Garvey. And Marcus Garvey also was somebody who traveled and moved around a lot. And that travel uh, deeply influences the views that he has. So Bob Marley begins to see the world as a space in which there, there can be movement and there can be a, a way of visioning a future 
that is a future for people, especially like him, because he often saw himself straight through his career as a spokesperson for people in Jamaica first and then people, black people universally afterwards. That was very clear in a lot of what he said. Um, and he felt that by his experience of traveling, by seeing these various spaces in which he, he went in, and this is, I suppose, part of the thing that, that, that you know, the sort of intrepidness to Bob Marley that he kind of kept pushing, pushing through things that seemed to be barriers naturally to him. And he, he, he constantly chipped away at it. Um, and then that, that sense that you can actually achieve something. I think each little stage of achievement in his life um, encouraged him to keep going more and to sort of gain more resources and to gain more uh, sustenance from people he brought with him musicians from Jamaica, that experience from Jamaica, and, and remake this idea of a world that could be better. And that's, that's, that's very much shaped by what he's getting at home with Rastafari, what he's getting before he really cites Rastafari with the heavy influence of Christianity that was part and parcel of a lot of his upbringing. Um, and what he's seen, I mean, it's Bob Marley's seen a lot. And this, this goes back again. I mean, if you take what, I, what I've been sort of sketching, the global Bob Marley you can sort of move back in time and see that Bob Marley, even from before he starts to go international, was somebody who even moved around Kingston. He never really settled in one. He's known for being in Trenchtown, but Bob Marley also moved all over East Kingston, Central Kingston, not just West Kingston. And so there's this sense of movement being very fundamental to Marley's, Marley's sense of the world and, and to crafting a vision in which people, and again, specifically black people in a lot of Bob Marley's um, view, which is again, heavily influenced by Rastafari and black consciousness and black power in Jamaica, um, can, can actually experience and can actually achieve something. Erin, do you want to add anything? Um, I'm not sure <laughs> if there's anything more to, to add to that in terms of a sort of a foundational perspective of how to look at to, to look at Marley. I mean, I would I was gonna I was gonna sort of add or ask. I think the, the sort of two things. Well, let me ask the first one. He does in that earlier part, Matthew and I. You sort of said he's traveling around. He spends time. I think is it is it like in the late '60s to the early '70s? He's in the United States, and I'm curious about the influence of that experience on him. I think his mother goes to live in the United States and he ends up uh, staying, I think, in Delaware where he works in a factory. So he's obviously there. He's taking in musical influences, but I'm so curious about politics. I mean, this is a, this is a very volatile time in American um, political history. You know, as you said, black power, uh, black nationalism is, 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 is very prominent. Malcolm X, I suppose, has already been murdered. But the Panthers are, are, are around. Um, can you say a little bit about that? And I also, one of the things that I thought was fascinating, he makes that song, uh, well, it, he makes it later, but I'm assuming Night Shift, which is a sort of reference to working in, a, in an industrial, in a kind of factory, may refer back to that Delaware experience. So this kind of black nationalist, anti-capitalist anti ideas, he's definitely getting into contact with that. Can you say maybe something about that, either one of you or both of you? Okay, well, I'll say something briefly. Yes, Bob Marley goes to live in, in Delaware in 1966 for nine months with his mother, Sidella uh, Booker, uh, originally Sidella uh, Malcolm, then Sidella Marley, then Sidella Booker. 
uh, the the motivation to go there was a very similar motivation to many Jamaicans at the time. This is four years after independence. Uh, the, the impulse to migrate had always existed, as I said before. The Windrush generation, which is very significant in Jamaica migration or really um, English-speaking Caribbean migration to the UK starts in the late 40s into the 50s, and there's a bit of a closing off of that door by the early 60s. At the same time, the United States is opening up on the President Johnson to migration. So there seems to be potential there. And so Bob Marley is one of thousands of Jamaicans who are migrating, and they're all over the United States, New York, Florida, uh, and including Wilmington, Delaware, where you had actually, uh, you had Jamaicans who had settled there. It wasn't unique for Marley or the Malcolms to have been uh, in Delaware at the time. Um, and so Bob Marley arrives there at a time, as you mentioned correctly, of uh, the civil rights struggle is going through its big shift and it's been um, a transition. He's heavily, he's seeing this, the racial tensions are, are very strong in urban America at the time. Um, you, you know, in 66, you had the breakouts of riots in, in, in Los Angeles and you had sort of spin-off effects on the East Coast as well. So he's, he's obviously seeing that, and that is having a big impact. But I think we should always be cautious whenever we speak about any figures who travel a lot. Uh, even going back to uh, the great Marcus Gavi, who I spoke about before, is to locate them in their time, but also understand that, that idea or, or that, that positionality of being an immigrant from a small country, particularly a small island as Jamaica was, entering a very big space, right? Um, it takes time to sort of lay your roots. And also very often people don't fit in or don't sense that they fit in. We saw this again with Garvey. Garvey's charisma carries him through and leads him to galvanize the UNIA. With Bob Marley, he was very young at the time and he arrives and, and he's missing Jamaica, he's missing his wife, he's missing uh, his, his, band, his group members, Peter Tosh and Bonnie Whaler. He's missing those opportunities. And so when he becomes politicized, if we can say that, it's a politics that is arriving to Bob Marley through, his, through two channels principally, but not only. One, his reflection on what's happening back home in Jamaica, which is also going through changes. He left Jamaica just at the apex of the rude boy period when Rocksteady was, was taken off. He's sensing that Rocksteady is a great excitement for Jamaican youth. He feels he's missing out on that excitement and he wants to go back. And of course, he's in a community where he's hearing news about that. And two, he's very much embracing American music, uh, American R&B, American soul music, like many teenagers of the 60s uh, and people in the early 20s. Um, black music was global. It had a massive impact all over the world. And this is all, and, and it travels. And with that, there's, there are political messages that are coming in with the music. So yes, he's seeing the sort of consciousness and that, that is happening and reading that political environment he's in, but he's actually accessing it and forming his own views on, on it um, more directly through the music. And I mean, and I think that when you look at sort of this early period of Marley's, of Marley's career, um, you know, the, the fact that he was out of the country when Haile Selassie visited in 1966, but um, Peter Tosh was not, um, you know, he he's drawing on different types of influences, and 
And I mean, I was lucky enough to be a part of a, a recent uh, issue of Ideas Journal edited by Julia Bonacci and, and Michael Barnett. And we had a, uh, myself, and we had an, an article by Dean McNeil who looked at three particular songs from the period of 1966 to 1970, Freedom Time, The Lord Will Make a Way Somehow, and Man to Man, which were reworked into um, other songs later later on, but really through the through looking at these particular songs um, and mentioning songs like Night Shift, um, what McNeil is arguing is that you see in Marley a much more uh, political period early on, and then of course the movement. Um, I mean, I suppose direct and direct political lyrics early on, and then we see this this changing and shifting. And Marley really, as um, as Matthew mentioned, kind of thinking through how best to engage with themes of freedom and liberation, um, whether on a local level or on a wider international level or on the continent of Africa or um, within himself. So this early period of, of, Marley's, of, of Marley's life as, a, as, a, as an artist, as a, as a thinker, are, is very much imbued with um, politics based on the experiences that, that Matthew's just uh, described. Right, and he comes back, he comes back to a Jamaica which at that point, it, politics is also kind of radicalizing, right, in the, in the early 1970s. So this is, and I'd like for you, either of you, to just fill that in for, for viewers, people who don't or are not familiar with that part of Jamaican history, which is you have a kind of Jamaican variant of socialism emerging. Uh, it's happening in the context of a Cold War. There, there is, you know, a looming economic crisis. Um, and this is also a period where politics become really violent, like political competition. I mean, is it fair? And, I, and, I, and I, I actually really enjoyed Matthew's comment that you have to take into account that he's an immigrant, that he's, he's moving around. But at this point, what I'm describing now, he's, he's now settling in, in Jamaica. And he's really, there's now a kind of, if you want, almost like a back and forth between his music and this political context that he's operating. Yeah, and I would I would say to that, Sean, it's a generational back and forth, mm -hmm. right? Because Bob Marley is part of a generation that is becoming increasingly of musicians and young people, but increasingly um, radical in their outlook. And uh, Rastafari is a major part of that, but of course there are other um, streams that are happening at the same time. And always in Jamaica, you'll have this reflection of the sort of temperature on the street, if you will, through the music, through the popular culture. And um, there were many sorts of, of, of moments where you see that in the late 60s, that the Whalers, and I think here we talk about Bob Marley with the Whalers, because he's part of that group, uh, that they are, they're, they're very plugged into that, very, very plugged into that. Um, and, and not only is it uh, becoming the sort of new soundtrack of representing the Jamaican popular, but it's also becoming very, very it's becoming a hit. It's becoming very strong, very powerful, this music. Um, and 1968 is a turning point in many ways for, for the Jamaican story that you have mentioned there politically, because it is the period that we have uh, the so-called Rodney riots when um, Walter Rodney came to uh, 
lecturer in African history and he's banned from Jamaica. And then the banning leads to this, to this uproar um, of a protest really that started with students at the university and becomes more generalized. But you also have, in, in addition to that, uh, a series of strikes and protests against um, the economic circumstances in Jamaica at the time. I mean, and if there's one pivotal song that really nails this moment. It's actually not the Bob Marley or the Whaler song, it's actually the song, Everything Crash. Uh, that song, which talks about watermen striking, firemen striking, teachers striking, all of these people. It really is a sort of powerful comment on Jamaica at that point in time. And what, what happens then is that it opens space politically, not just for the youth, but also for new political leaders. And somebody like Michael Manley, is very, has his ear to the ground. He's a labor leader. He's sort of sowed his political roots working in um, grassroots communities, um, particularly with, with sugar workers and, and in, the, um, in, in the trade unions. And he sees and senses this, this, this change coming on and he plugs into that. So the, the, the idea of uh, more radical national politics is, is heavily connected to the changes in the popular culture at the same time. And, and so when Manley comes to power in February 1972, uh, he doesn't come to power on a ticket of socialism, not at all. He comes to power on a ticket of creating more, again, the word freedom becomes very strong there, a, a, a sort of realization of what real independence is. And that motivates the youth at the time, including Bob Marley including Bob Marley, Peter Tosh, Bonnie Whaler, they were heavily motivated by that because they see a chance now for the state to actually be responsive to the majority population. And then that evolves by 74 into democratic socialism. And then that's a, that's a different story because when it, becomes, when it becomes labeled an ideology, because before it wasn't labeled um, ideologically, it was called, as Manley wrote, the politics of change or change in society. But once it becomes connected to democratic socialism, which was not new, I should add, that had existed in the People's National Party from before. It's resurrected by Michael Manley and given a new sort of breath through what is happening in globally at the time. Then it becomes, um, it, it heightens a tension that is going on uh, under the surface. What Bob Marley is able to do, and this is really the time you begin to see Bob Marley's um, sort of protest music that he becomes famous for is being written during this time. Again, in a space where a lot of that is happening, a lot of his contemporaries are writing this kind of music, John Holt, Alton Ellis, Delroy Wilson. There are so many of them that are also speaking about this issue, but Bob Marley is capturing it very, very, um, very well and, and has a moment with the, the, the signing with Chris Blackwell and the harder they come as a very um, instrumental uh, moment because it opens up a foreign market to Jamaican produce reggae, um, that that begins to to create the space. So the politics and the popular are closely intertwined in Jamaica during this period. In terms of the politics and the popular, and I mean, I think I want to backtrack to what you were touching on, and I think Erin, you've you've written about this before, which is Walter Ronnie's influence on on Mali and the Rastas. The Rodney rights were were mentioned, and um, Aaron, in the past, you've you've acknowledged this influence in Jamaican nationhood and written that the Rastafari have encountered great repression from the authorities under colonialism and since. 
but their presence has also forced the governments to take some official steps towards restoring Africa to an image of dignity in the public mind. So can you, can you, in terms of tracing this sort of long political influence that was affected over Mali and, and the whalers, connecting it to, to Rodney and, and that sort of early kind of um, revolutionary foment? I mean, I think this the strength of the Rastafari movement uh, stems from it. And normally, when I try to teach 18-year-olds about what Rastafari is, I kind of express that it's a bit of a perfect storm of a range of different factors, um, be they you know political, uh, spiritual, um, cultural, that come together within at a particular point in the 20th century to create an extraordinarily powerful um, belief system that can equally be uh, seen as a political movement a, a personal liberty as Rastafari would say you know a way of life um, and a a spiritual a spiritual belief system and so I think that um, at the time in in the 1970s, and and I, and I can talk a little bit about what happens, unfortunately, to uh, Marley in the 1980s um, after his death. But in the 1970s, the influence of of, of um, politics and um, the ideas of someone like uh, Walter Rodney are so are so are so powerful and seen within the music and seen within the lyrics and seen within the political system that is in existence in in Jamaica at the time. But and you know Matthew mentioned you have the signing with uh, with Chris Blackwell in in 1972 that eventually leads to um, a moment uh, in the early 80s after Marley's, Marley's death where the idea of putting together a selection of songs, which we all know of as legend, um, which was released actually in May of 1984. And that selection of songs was very specifically meant to pull Marley away from all of this tradition that we've just been discussing and to situate Marley as a very friendly um, pop. And, and, and I'm not going to deny Legend is an absolute masterpiece, song after song after song of, of songs, construction, popular music, you name it. But it was a marketed means of spreading a particular sound and a means of making that friendly to white people um, and friendly to an international audience. And I think that, that, that what we've been talking about, about all of this influence that goes into Marley's music and into reggae music in the 1970s that is so profoundly powerful and political and speaking, you know, truth to power and speaking about oppression and speaking um, in an anti-colonial manner, then with some crafty, uh, um, I guess, because the, the name legend actually came from 
focus groups. Like it was focus groups among, amongst people. And um, Michelangelo Matos in his recent book that just came out about pop music in 1984 called Can't Slow Down has a wonderful chapter where he speaks directly about how legend happened makes it very clear that this was a purely marketing decision and it has been tremendously successful it remains successful and that the sound of reggae is basically singularly defined as that selection of songs which divorces bob marley from his most political statements from his um from rastafari um, and really shapes him in a very different way. And this, I would argue, has a tremendous influence on not only the way that Marley is seen internationally, but also in the way that Rastafari is seen internationally. And that includes Ethiopia. Sorry, I'm, I was on mute there. I, I just wanted to like to stick with this for a minute before we move on. And I think maybe what, what I think Rodney was driving at on top of what you were saying, Aaron, was this point about how, what Rasta did, and, and I, I'm, I'll be curious to see what Bob Marley's role in this, because Bob Marley at this point is also becoming like a commercial artist, right, by the mid-1970s. Rodney's point was that Rasta uh, forced the government to take official steps towards restoring Africa to an image of dignity in the public mind. And I know, Matthew, you and I have talked about this before, but there is a, I'd be, I, I just for people who don't know that history, that Bob Marley and Rasta did a lot. And of course, you, you describe sort of Manley's kind of political move, like he's totally, he, he feels the time. But there, there is a moment here in which, if you want Jamaica also, in its, in its public image, becomes, if you want, a black country or an African country. You know, of course, a country with many cultures, if you want, but it is not it makes, it comes to terms with that. Is that, is that a fair point? Um, it is. I mean, I would, I would, I would add to that, Sean, that there are so many shifts that are happening in Jamaica at this time. And really, when we think about this, a really short period of time. If you, if you look at Walter Rodney coming to Jamaica and being banned at 68, then Rodney is murdered in 1980 and Bob Marley dies the following year in May 1981. This is not a long period of time at all. And if you think about the shifts, even in just appearance, how people were dressed in 1960, 68, even people who were, um, who were Rasta, who were Rastafari and, and, and the, 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 the advent of dreadlocks, dreadlocks really becomes not obviously it existed before, but it becomes very, very popular going to the early 70s. And a lot of that change has to do with the, the sort of broader changes that are happening at that time. And I'm glad you mentioned that point about Walter Rodney, because it's important because Walter Rodney had said and written about it that he didn't create anything in Jamaica when he was there. He found something that was there and he was he was very encouraged by what he saw that was there. And it, it, it really sort of connected to his own, um, his own sorts of politics and his radicalism and his Marxism and his experience with African decolonization. So he saw that there was something in Jamaica where people in Jamaica were plugged into, um, you know, they were reading the news from all over. They knew what was happening uh, in Africa. They knew what was happening in the United States. They knew what was happening in Europe across Latin America. And, and that was a very important thing to have that global sense. 
uh, among an entire generation, even if it wasn't fully appreciating all the details of the politics, there was a sense that Jamaica had a place to play in this broader world. Uh, and that's a really powerful thing. And, and coming back to, to, to um, the period of the 70s and that sense that you just ended on about black consciousness, it has to be understood from as a sort of buildup from the late 60s going into the 70s, but also this sense of positioning Jamaica as a strong voice in global black politics. And Michael Manley was very important in that, in that regard. Um, you know, we can disagree with his politics, we can disagree with the outcomes of his governance, but Michael Manley uh, saw Jamaica as having an important voice in a broader black world, the non-aligned world, the African world, uh, the invitations he extended to, um, to, to, to many um, leaders of decolonized Africa to come to Jamaica and do state visits there. Um, because he saw Jamaica as as very very much connected to that, and it's it's it, it's a parallel. It's not twinned with, but it is a parallel to the Rastafari vision at that time. I wanna, I mean, I wanna ask more about this, which I mean, not to sort of belabor the point, but to ask more about what Rodney was seeing in Jamaica and and pulling off what Sean was saying earlier, which is that you get the sense that Jamaica is in this sort of unique position where has a confluence of different factors in how it reinvents itself. It is able to avoid, not entirely, but in, in large part, it's able to avoid a lot of the usual sort of morbidities that fall over uh, a post-colonial nation insofar as that it doesn't sort of break down into uh, ethnic strife or or anything like that, where you get the sense that in that, that period, and you, you're right to say it's a very sort of brief window of history, that it was almost setting the terms in a very preliminary way for what an emancipatory decolonial project could look like that is in the language and and in the traditions of the people that lived there, but not in some, it's it's complicated because it's not in some, and it would be interesting to think about this in terms of Rastafari and Zion, but it doesn't seem to be in that crass way of, it's simply about going back to some sort of pre-colonial nostalgic past, but at the same time, mobilizing a vision of an untouched past, but using that for a, a futuristic um envisioning of, of society and a society that is not based on oppression and injustice. Um, so my question is, how did, how did Jamaica become the place where this was all happening? Well, uh, I'll be brief because, so that Erin can comment on that as well, Will. But I would also mention, though, it's important to bear in mind, I, while we do have a sketch of a sort of emancipatory politics, to use your term, that is evolving at this time, there are constraints which are also considerable. And many of those constraints are internal constraints, social class, color, the economy, uh, urban divides in the city of Kingston. All of these things have tremendous pressure, political tribalism. These all have tremendous pressure on the possibility to realize those visions. And, and, and in a sense, what you have is almost like a movement in one direction and in, including internal and external factors sort of pressing against it. 
The filter for that has often been migration. That has been a fundamental part to understanding the Caribbean experience, but also in this, in this regard, the Jamaican experience. And you, you begin to see uh, great numbers of Jamaicans migrating uh, from the period 1976 in, into 1980. Right, so this, you know, Bob Marley's Exodus is, as Erin says, it's 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 a vision of a return to Africa, but it's also a statement of what was happening in Jamaica at the time with a lot of migration. Um, he said it in an interview. Somebody asked him what was Exodus about. He said, "Well, it's what's happening in Jamaica, right?" And and a lot of that is because it's it is the changes in the society which have personal, not just political, but personal effects. Right, the increase in violence, the sense of the sense of uh, limited possibility. And, and part of it is, one could look at it in hindsight, that the, the political shifts that were happening at the time, considerable valiant as they were, uh, may, may have been happening at the time where the infrastructure to maintain and stabilize those shifts was still too weak. Uh, and that led the state to become vulnerable to external influence and, and the impact of that towards destabilization, which creates a certain undoing uh, at that time. Uh, and, and, you know, to come to Aaron's point about when we get to the post-Marley period in the 1980s, at the same time, reggae is becoming global and, and, and with globalization becomes a sense of commercialization of the music, which actually starts even before Bob Marley passes. Because, you know, one of the, 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 the realities um, on the ground in Jamaica is that by the time Bob Marley is, is, is on his way out 1918 to 1981, young Jamaicans are listening to something else. They've started to sort of tune their ears to, to what we now call dancehall, which was then probably called DJ music. Um, so there's this sense that there's an image of Jamaica that had been built in the 70s that, that Jamaicans themselves don't, are young Jamaicans coming in are, are, are butting against, they're resisting that. And in a sense, that's always there, you know. That's always there. One of the things that's striking about the Rocksteady period, for instance, in Jamaican music history is that it's so short. Rocksteady doesn't really last. That's the intermediary period between ska and um, reggae. And it, it begins to dwindle in Jamaica at the same time it's being picked up internationally. And that there's a sense that young Jamaicans are saying, well, you know, that's for other people to dance to, but we want to create our own thing that reflects our circumstances now, which is reggae. Um, and it's the same kind of motivation that leads to the, to the push towards dancehall. I also think it's important not to overestimate the influence of, uh, I mean, maybe not, to, that, maybe that's the wrong word, uh, not to underestimate the ways in which Rastafari were oppressed by the government and any of the movements that preceded Rastafari. I mean, the Coral Gardens massacre in 1963 those or a, a, a horrific um, attack on on Rastafari as a concept and and Rastafari as people and a, a, a large number of the individuals who um, went to Ethiopia who were the initial repatriates were exiting Jamaica migrating because of this experience of oppression that uh, that the was weighing down on them through uh, Babylon in its many different uh, many different guises, and I think that um, 
as much as you know, we can celebrate a lot of the, the music and um, the ways in which, for instance, Michael Manley uh, sort of took up uh, the Rastafari as being, you know, took their name as Joshua, the rod of correction and all of this type of thing. I mean, Rastafari, even to the present, are not um, without stigma uh, in, in Jamaica. Uh, even today when the, the wider world, many places in the world are fine with the use of, of, of ganja, it's still not exactly legalized and in, in ways that um, are able to serve the Rastafari community and allow for subsistence of the Rastafari community in Jamaica. So I think it is it is important to, to recognize that um, Jamaica as a space, as a, as a liberatory space, as an emancipatory space, as this, this place of, of, of potential, that was not what Rastafari was seeing Jamaica as and still continues not to see Jamaica as the space for um, you know, for, for liberation. I mean, that's what repatriation is for. I mean, at the Rastafari Studies Conference, I think it was in 2012, um, there was a, a uh, um, uh, Roy Oje, Sir Roy Oje gave a keynote address to a large uh, group of Rastafari and scholars, because there were practitioners and scholars at the conference, um, saying why not make use of the political strength of Rastafari to serve Jamaica. May, and he, he said, you know, make Jamaica your home. And this was received not very well by the audience, the idea that you would not insist on repatriation, you, that, that Jamaica would be this, this space is, is not something that is particularly common amongst Rastafari, so much so that, um, you know, when I was doing um, a fellowship at UWE and working with Jelani Naya, we were interviewing a Rastafari who moved to Ethiopia and then returned. So we called it the double return uh, to Jamaica. And some of the strategies that these double returnees were engaging in, in order to be able to deal with uh, being in Jamaica included trying to live their lives in accordance with the constitution of Ethiopia as the as it had been written under the under the guidance of Haile Selassie or trying to gather um, a range of different types of uh, memorabilia that would assist in reminding them of Ethiopia or converting to Ethiopian Orthodox Christianity to reconnect as much as possible with Ethiopia. So even those who had, had been unsuccessful in repatriation returned to, to Jamaica were still engaged in um, a desire to repatriate. So, I mean, I think that it's important to, to, to recognize the, the importance of repatriation to the Rastafari movement even at the same time as, as the movement has influenced um, politics and uh, sort of uh, anti-colonial thinking and um, a range of other movements within, within Jamaica and the wider world. I really like how we barely, um, like the more we, the more we ask, the more we probe, we learning like it's, it, it gets more and more complicated, but I want to, it would be remiss. And I think people will be like, why didn't you ask about this? Which is, 
Bob Marley specifically, and you've, you've now spoke, um, and as I said, Aaron has written a book about this, about these people who, who physically make the return to Africa. Bob Marley himself, um, and, and I know he, he himself had a desire to, to travel to Africa, and he did so. I think he went to his first, and, and, and interesting, I think it's the contradictions of these trips. So he goes to Gabon, I think, first, where he goes to perform for what is essentially at the invitation of a dictatorship. Um, and when he gets there, he finds all kinds of contradictions. Um, I understand he did go to Kenya, and from Kenya he went to Ethiopia. Although there's not often much written about those trips, and I'd be curious as to what else you guys know about those two trips, particularly the Ethiopia part, like what he felt and found. And then finally, as we know, of course, he goes to Zimbabwe, um, where he sort of, and again, this is all like interpretation now, where people say that he, he basically can anticipate the disappointment um, what Zimbabweans you know, will, will experience with post-colonial rule, um, and particularly with, uh, with, with Robert Mugabe. So I, I, I know there's, there are two things here. One is this kind of, this, this sort of generalized you know, politics of return by just regular ordinary people. And then there's on the other, this, this kind of, by then like a, a pop star, like, a, you know, well, he becomes a, he's, he's, yeah, he's a pop star at this point already. He's as much as he's a sort of radical musical figure who's now traveling to these places. So I'm just curious as to like, can you say a little bit about Mali and Africa, like that, the, the physical space of Africa, he himself and his travels there? I mean, I mentioned just in the first moments of our discussion about the uh, the experience as described by Horace Campbell of um, Bob Marley in Shashamani, the very fact that uh, he experienced a, I mean, he was he was disappointed um, by by Shashamani. Um, as someone who spent a lot of time in Shashamani and has a deep love for Shashamani, I mean. I can understand a bit of the disappointment. If someone tells you that it's Zion and it looks like just a small town, well, a large town, um, th there's nothing particularly uh, uh, special about Shashamani on first glance. Um, once you get to know people, it can be a little different. But uh, so he was, he was in fact disappointed and disappointed in, the, in this situation um, that, that people were finding themselves in post-revolutionary Ethiopia as individuals who uh, predominantly did not did not speak uh, local languages. And you know, when I did most of my research, um, which was a period of from 2004 to 2014, a number of different um, uh, trips, still the large majority of the Rastafari community uh, were not fluent in Amharic or Afanaromo. And this really limited um, their their experience, and also the reality that Ethiopia and Ethiopian culture was something that was very very different from Jamaican culture, especially. Uh, and so, these kind of things, I believe, you know, and you you can't read his mind, but you could you can see in terms of as I mentioned before this shift in the music that, uh, and the message of the music that happens after that experience of, uh, of, visiting, of visiting Shashamani. I also think that the other, the other elements of his engagement in Africa 
And um, Grant Farad has talked about this in, in What's My Name, Black Vernacular Intellectuals, where he talks very specifically about how one can read um, a song like Zimbabwe as actively uh, speaking to um, sort of post-colonial or let's say neo-colonial um, potential of uh, what he was seeing um, as he traveled in Africa, and you mentioned the the Gabon situation, um, which could be kind of brought into into that into that as well. Matthew, would you like to add to that? That was very well stated. Not much more <laughs> to add. I mean, I would I would the only thing I would add to to the point about the Zimbabwe trip was of course it was a, a huge honor for him to be invited to perform at the independent celebration of Zimbabwe. Tremendous honor. And I think as much as the disappointments that um that Aaron pointed out were part of his experience with Africa, I do think he took something from that trip that was that that last trip that that really filled him up yeah because i mean in a sense this is what he had been striving for mm. and, and i do think can i just mention one thing i do think that, that something that is particularly interesting is rita marley's engagement with africa um even after of uh, marley's death i mean she has has had a tremendously long um, experience and engagement um, with with Ethiopia, with with Ghana, um, with politicians, with um, different NGOs, um, a range of different types of of initiatives that she has uh, engaged in. I mean, there's a, a whole chapter in my book dedicated to the Africa Unite concert of 2005, celebrating what would have been Bob Marley's 60th birthday, really an initiative of Rita Marley and uh, the people around her, uh, an engagement directly with the Ethiopian state, trying to create this direct connection between Bob Marley and Africa, Bob Marley and specifically Ethiopia. And um, you know, the, the result of, of that was uh, an explosion, frankly, in reggae music within Ethiopia. I mean, even during the time of my research, you could you could see leading up to the Africa Unite um, concert in 2005, and then after that, you have a tremendous um, amount of uh, of reggae music before 2005, before the concert, very much kind of imitations of Bob Marley, and then post 2005 and leading up till even now, you have real. Ethiopian reggae that's being developed that is mixing in different sorts of um, Ethiopian uh, rhythms. Um, famously, Haile Roots has his chige mixing uh, chikchika of um, the uh, of Amharic pop music with uh, reggae rhythms to create something that he sees as uniquely his own. And that's just one example of um, the the artists that it, that sort of took inspiration and understanding of the power of reggae mu music from that moment of having, I think over a hundred thousand people, maybe I'm exaggerating, but it was a lot of people in the main square in Addis Ababa in 2005. And the, 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 the understanding of the power of Bob Marley's music, the power of reggae music um, really sort of shifted in even Ethiopian music at that time. And so okay, yeah, I think we'll ask you one more question because I know we're, we're 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 basically who reads the top of the hour. 
And this is a this is a much lighter question. And my the final question is really: Can you tell us something about Bob Marley? That and, and by the way, there are so many other questions and debates we wanted to get into: gender politics. We wanted to get into uh, the, the you know the the, the how, whether how and whether how his children and his family, um, you know, what they've done with his with his with he with the Bob Marley Museum and with his legacy. The Aaron's point earlier about Bob Marley as this kind of uh, touchy feely pop star. There, you know, there's a lot. There's a lot we could have done, but we, alas, we we only have time for so many things. But my my final question is really a kind of a nice one, which is, can you tell us a thing about Bob Marley that is less well-known um, or notice, noticed about him that is surprising, an aspect of his life that people don't know, that you know from the work that you've done, that either of you have done? I'll just say a quick brief one. There are so many, but I'll just say that he was a big fan of cricket. He liked cricket. You always think of Bob Marley with football. Need, he actually liked cricket. I need too. that essay. I need that essay. That's an essay. <laughs> <laughs> he like, did he ever play? Did he actually ever sort of play? From time to time? For, he, I think he played for fun. Yeah. yeah. It's so funny. Who was his favorite cricketer? I'd love to know that. That I don't know. Because you're right. There's so much written. The whole football thing has been mined so much. Like, you know, his visits to Brazil... His friendship with Skilly Cole, right? All, all these kind of football references have been brought up. But it's interesting that I've never heard. It's funny, you, maybe this is well known, but I don't know it, that he had this affinity and like for cricket. I did not know that. Wow. Well, one of the biggest cricketers from Jamaica was what came from Trenchtown, Carly Smith. Ah. So he would have grown up with the heavy influence of Carly Smith's legend. Um, so a lot of a lot of youth would have would have been following cricket as most Jamaican um, now. Well, less so now, but that generation would have been following it closely. Well, did not know that. And I don't know if people necessarily know this, but um, from the perspective of the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, Bob Marley is Christian. He is not Rastafari. He was baptized as um, Burhani Selassie. And there's an interesting um, interview on YouTube. It is in Amharic um, by a, a, um, a bishop by the name, sorry, a priest by the name of Likhanek Masale, who spent a lot of time with Bob Marley in Jamaica. Um, and he absolutely insists that uh, Bob Marley was completely not Rastafari at all, um, and that in fact he was a, a very fervent Ethiopian um, Orthodox uh, Christian. If he ever was Rastafari, he converted. So, and all of the um, sort of Ethiopian Orthodox Church sources that I spoke to were fully convinced of, of this fact and would not be told anything different. And one of the things we did not get into, I think Matthew makes a reference to in the, in the post that he wrote on the website, which is that there were always tensions also between Bob Marley and Rastas. Mm -hmm. we, we didn't even talk about that today. Yeah. In any case, we, we want to recommend um, um, all Matthew Smith's writings on... <laughs> On the website, including that piece that we just put up, we want to recommend Aaron's pieces, and we want to thank them for taking time out from you know uh, just in a in a very difficult time. Uh, it's the end of the semester for people teaching. Well, 
in in this country at least or in North America, and it's it's rough. I can I can I can attest to this. It's a rough time. So, um, but I'm very happy that both of them agreed to um, come on the show today and uh, help people understand a little, just a little bit more about Bob Marley. We can we could have done a series of programs <laughs> on Bob Marley. Or in, in, and as we're now learning, we could have, we could even do a separate program just on Rasta. Um, but yeah, this has been wonderful and great, and I really appreciate both of you. Great poster in the back, Matthew. I don't know where that Jalai is that original. It's from, it's from Ethiopia. Yeah, it's an Ethiopian poster. From that to that, from the 2005, or from an earlier time? Uh, earlier, earlier. Excellent. I want to thank both of you. This was great. I want to thank uh, my co-presenter, Will. Shoki and our presenter, um, Antoinette Engel. Uh, come back next week when we'll be back. Uh, I think we're doing next week is what we call the culture show, or I may be mistaken. I should keep better time on these things. But thank you very much and enjoy the day. Thank you so much for having yeah, us. Thank you.